Amen. Thank you, Rich. And would you please join me in opening up a Bible to 1 John chapter 3. That's where we'll be starting off from as we continue in our series in this letter. Um, to be honest with you, I, there's a million things I want to say right now, right, from this past week. And a million things I've thought about saying leading up to this morning. And what I have kind of come to, and um, even as I said last week, that we're, we're going to gather today, and we're going to open up this book, and we're going to preach the Word of God, and we're going to pray for our country as Rich did. And, and we will do that no matter what happens or who's where or what is, is kind of how things shake out, that we know where our calling and where our authority is derived from. And so the one thing I will say, out of the million I thought about, is Grace Church, let us prioritize withdrawing to the Word of God. Withdrawing to the Word of God for our souls, right? That's not a form of escape. That's not let's bury our head in the sand and act like nothing's happening around us. But it's a time of withdrawal that serves to, to spotlight Jesus Christ, to reaffirm in our minds and hearts that which is eternal, to clarify our purpose in this world so that we can, in a sense, return to the reality of this world strengthened by the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a withdrawal and a return. Withdrawal to be strengthened, returned in the strength of the Spirit to do what God is calling us to do. Um, you know, my, my weekly rhythm is to dedicate Wednesdays as my sermon and study preparation day. Um, and, and so I might find small pockets of time, other days of the week to dedicate as well as needed. Uh, but week in, week out, Wednesday, all day, blocked off for sermon preparation. So unless in the case of emergency, I generally don't schedule any meetings on Wednesdays. I don't have calls, no lunches. Um, I try and stay off social media as much as I can. I try and just check my email sporadically. Uh, my phone is on silent, even from the family, although I work next door so I can hear the emergency from the family. Or I don't even need the phone from that. I know I need to get home. Um, but I want to, on Wednesdays, just immerse myself in the passage that we're going to be in together as a church Immerse myself in commentaries on that passage, both from uh, modern days and commentaries from centuries ago. I want to study. I want to take notes. I want to outline. I want to write. And so there is a sense of withdrawal on me on Wednesdays, and, and I could not have probably ever been more grateful for Wednesdays than I was this past week. Because as someone who can be, um, maybe addicted is too strong a word, but can be very drawn to news cycles, very drawn to refresh the page, very drawn to what's the latest information, what's the update, my soul needs a time of withdrawal to read, to dwell upon, to pray over God's word. And that's true as a pastor, but I think that's just even more true as a Christian. And so this week, like every week, I withdrew to the word to prepare our time together as a church, our time of withdrawal, to gather around this word, to sing it together, to pray it, to proclaim it, and then to celebrate it. And in God's providence, the Sunday after the election, what is the main thrust of the passage that we're going to find ourselves this morning in 1 John? What's the main theme? Love one another. It's not the first time John is imploring the church to love one another in this short letter. And spoiler alert, it won't be the last time he tells us to love one another. 
But just like we saw last week, we're going to kind of see John kind of travel on the same path, but now kind of come to it and see it from a different vantage point. He's going to provide a different way of seeing the same commands that he's already given to us in hopes that it will, will actually get it maybe the second time around. Why does John keep telling us the same things in this letter? Why does he keep circling around the same themes? Because John wants the church to know Jesus and to make him known. And as the 20th century English pastor John Stott says, love is the surest test of having life. If I were to ask everybody in the room right now or anybody watching on the live stream, if, are, are you alive right now? Are you physically alive? You know what you wouldn't do? You wouldn't get up quick, rush to your car, and go home to go through your files to find your birth certificate and say, yes, I was born. No, if I asked you if you're alive, you would simply check your pulse. And similarly, if I asked you, are you spiritually alive right now in Christ? It's an even more important question. You wouldn't have to go find evidence of your baptism, a certificate maybe you got on it. You wouldn't have to think about the time you raised your hand at summer camp when you were eight or, or, or the time in church when you walked forward when you were 20 or 32 or 47. You would not have to think about the date you were saved. No, you, you would simply check your heart. Love is the surest test of having life. So would you join with me? We're going to be in 1 John chapter 3. And we'll start by reading verses... Um, 10 to 15. We, we ended with 10 last week, but I want to read it again to kind of show how it connects into verse 11. So verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Number one this morning... John spotlights the enemy of love. We have seen and spoken about the three tests of faith that John is constantly giving in this letter that he keeps revolving around, right? The the tests that are meant to give us assurance, not anxiety. These are not meant to make us anxious about our own souls, but to give us assurance in him. There's the test of belief in Jesus. There's the test of obedience to his commands. And now there's the, the test of love for others that we're seeing again. He did it in the end of chapter 1, and now he's going to kind of go even deeper now in chapter 3. But if you remember back in chapter 1, remember John said, I'm giving you a new command, but it's really a new reminder of an old command that you've heard from the beginning. Love one another. John is going to get repetitive on us. And repetition is a clue to what the authors want us to understand. So if you are studying the Bible on your own, we're always encouraging people at Grace Church to learn how to study and grow in your own knowledge of the Word of God, to be edified by your own study, daily time in the Word. 
a good point of advice is to always ask a question about a passage that you're in is what phrase, what phrases or words or ideas are being repeated? All good teachers reflect this trait, whether it's in a classroom or the football field or the Broadway stage or it's a parent to children. You repeat the things that are the most important to know. And while loving one another is not the only thing John emphasizes in this letter of 1 John, I think we will find by the end of the letter, it's the most emphasized. Church, do we recognize how vital our love for one another is? To our purpose and mission as a church. You know, discipleship plans and pathways and programs are important. Facilities and budgets are vital. Everything we do here plays a part. Our doctrinal statement is foundational, but they are all worthless if the people in the church do not love one another. A lack of love for others is enough to offset every good thing about a church. Because when a church stops loving, game over. Lights out. Don't come back. There's nothing you're going to be able to do. There's no mission you're going to be able to carry out. There's no purpose you're going to be able to stand on if we stop loving one another. So John is getting this point across in every which way he can. Don't miss it. Don't gloss over it. I know. Love one another. No, no, no. Don't view it that way. Love one another. And the reason why he's so passionate is because the enemy of love is so strong. The enemy is hate. John loves to make a point by first saying what it's not, right? We get this. We often do this ourselves. We're trying to explain something. We say, hey, first, let me tell you what I'm not saying. Let me tell you what this doesn't mean. It helps to clarify, crystallize. So John is saying, love one another. And to love one another is not to be like Cain, who was the evil one, who was of the evil one, and he murdered his brother. John invokes the story of Cain and Abel. If you know your Bible well, that early on in Genesis, there are the first two people in the Bible not named Adam and Eve. And after the fall, when sin entered the world, Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, exiled from the garden, and Eve gave birth to two sons, Cain and Abel. You could read the story in Genesis chapter 4. I would even encourage you to do it maybe later today. Genesis 4, 1 to 23. But Cain and Abel both brought offerings to the Lord. But apparently Cain brought his offering with the wrong motivation. So the Lord rejected the offering while accepting Abel's. It's one of the earliest indications is that it's not just the outer looks of what an offering looks like that matters. It's the inner motivation that brings that offering to the Lord. So the text says Cain was very angry. And the next time he was in the field alone with his brother, he killed Abel. The first murder in human history. But notice how John follows in the footsteps of Jesus by connecting murder with hatred. As the enemy of love. That that murder is merely the outward action that reflects the inward hate. A person filled with hate is a sign they are of the evil one. It's a sign that you're a child of this world and not a child of God. This is what John says, that that hatred is no different from murder. 
And again, he's merely repeating Jesus' teachings from Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. And so we hear that, and at first glance, we're like, that's a little bit of a stretch, isn't it? That's a little much. To hate is to murder. Maybe it's stretch in the world's eyes. Maybe you will not be sent to jail for hating somebody or for spewing hate on social media or for um, invoking that word to somebody even close to you as opposed to murdering someone where you will do some time for that, I hope. But in God's eyes, Jesus and now John are saying, you know, murder is merely the outward action of inward hate. Because when you hate someone, when you wish ill upon them, you, you wish they were gone. You wish they were out of your life, which is why hate is the first step of murder. Hate seeks to take from people, to take humanity from them. And so it is the enemy of love, and whoever does not love abides in death. And so just a quick application point for us here, maybe especially coming off a week that we are coming off of, that Christians, people who profess to be believers in Jesus Christ, should be very aware and very careful in the way they deploy the word hate. It really just shouldn't be on our lips. I, I don't think there's ever a situation where God will affirm your hatred for another person. Especially another believer who maybe just doesn't agree with the points you have the convictions over, but I think even a non-believer, I don't think there's ever a situation where God will affirm you hating someone. You can hate a sin that someone commits, but to say that we hate the person, I think is a foolish sense of weakness at best and a concerning reflection of our own hearts at worst. And so I think we should be quick to correct ourselves, and, and we should, in truth and love, be quick to correct others when hate is on someone else's lips, of, especially if a believer directed towards another person, regardless of what that other person has done. It's not of God to hate a fellow image bearer. It's never edifying. And it not only dehumanizes them as one who's made in the image of God, but it is destructive to our own soul, right? To, to hate someone who was made in the image of God is, is a form of hating God himself, and so when we invoke the word hate, maybe children, we do it to our parents when we're so angry that they're not doing something we want them to do. Maybe we do it towards someone who is in our country that has different political beliefs than we do or a different candidate that we tend to want to vote for. And we invoke that word. We do it. You know why we do it? Because we think it's going to be a dagger to the other person. But in reality, when we use the word hate, we're taking the dagger, turning it on ourselves, and stabbing ourselves. Hate is the enemy of love. Let's keep going. We're going to read just one verse here. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Number two, the essence of love. We first see the enemy of love. Now he switches to the essence of love. So um, you have heard of John 3.16. Many of you, if not all of you, have memorized John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But you should also memorize 1 John 3.16. 
which we just read, which speaks also of Christ's love demonstrated on the cross. And notice what John is doing here. If, if, if the enemy of love is hateful murder, then the essence of love is self-sacrifice. If the enemy of love seeks to take life from another, then the essence of love is to give your life for another. And amazingly, both hatred and love led to Jesus' death on the cross. All right, trivia question for um, people who especially kind of know their scriptures. Um, Why did Jesus die on the cross? The Bible gives us two answers that are not in contradiction with one another. Why did Jesus die on the cross? On one hand, Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross because of the hatred and jealousy of the Jewish elite. They wrongfully accused him. They manipulated a sham kangaroo court, and they got him sentenced to death. That's why Jesus died on the cross. That's true. But what's also true, and over and above that, is that Jesus died on the cross out of his deep love for sinners, to atone for their sin, to forgive them of it, and to reconcile them to the Father as adoptive children of God. The theological word here, if you're interested, is concurrence of God carrying out his sovereign purposes through his providential control over all of creation, that God accomplishes his purposes through the happenings of this world. And so the Jews thought they were putting an end to Jesus and to this little movement when he died out of their hatred for him. But as it turns out, His death and resurrection was the very means through which Jesus would be glorified and make a way for people to be saved. In John 10, 17 and 18, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down that I may take it up up again. Listen to this. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus dying on the cross is the objective historical evidence that love conquers hate every time. Charles Spurgeon said once in a sermon, Lord Jesus, I never knew thy love till I understood the meaning of thy death. For those here this morning, for those listening online who have not trusted your life to Jesus Christ, It is vital that you see from the text that salvation of being right with God is not you earning your way to God through good behavior, through strong morals, through making good decisions, but salvation is freely offered by a Savior who came down to give his life for you out of his great love and grace. Salvation is received as a gift, not earned as merit. Salvation comes through faith alone, believing that he is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who forgives you entirely, who lived the life you could not and died the death you deserved in your place. 
so that you can be reconciled to God. So since self-sacrifice is the essence of love, and we know this because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, we are called, John says, to walk in his footsteps, to have lives marked by this desire to lay our lives down for others. So let's keep going. 1 John 3, now verses 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. All right, let's keep going. We've seen the enemy of love. We've seen the essence of love. Now, number three, we see the evidence of love. There's going to be two parts to this third point, the evidence of love. First is action toward others. Love in action toward others. Just as Jesus not only spoke of his love for sinners, but he demonstrated it on the cross in action, so his followers should not merely speak of loving others, but demonstrate that love in action. So again, it's pretty brilliant what John is doing here. You kind of put this puzzle together. You see what he's doing with the contrasts that he paints for us with Cain and then with Jesus. Cain saw Abel in the field. He felt hatred towards Abel, and then he took his brother's life. Jesus saw his brothers, felt compassion for them, loved them, and then gave his own life for them. So for those who claim to be in Christ, who have the love of God abiding in them, John is saying, church, be more like Jesus less like Cain. Be more like Jesus, less like Cain. And this actionable love toward others is the evidence that we have that the love of God is in us. You know, a a big misconception of this verse is that everyone reads the the quote, um, the world's goods, everyone who has the world's goods, and they take that to mean that this is referring to the rich Christians, those who are really wealthy, They have the responsibility to provide for others. But I'm not rich, so I'm not as much called to this. When in actuality, the Greek word here indicates livelihood, not riches. John is referring, and he's writing to a church that was not filled with wealthy people in the first century Roman Empire. He's referring to ordinary, average believers who have the basics of livelihood at their disposal and therefore are capable of helping others. Now the Bible also does say to whom much is given, much is expected. So if there is a wealthy believer that they are called and have the opportunity to give more and help more, but every believer has a call on their life to provide for those who are in need that they see. Again, be more like Jesus, less like Cain. See someone in need. Feel compassion to want to fill that need and then demonstrate that in action outwardly. It's a call on all of our lives as individuals and as Grace Church to love in action, not in the ordinary. And one of the reasons we have these ordinary means is not just to provide ourselves and for our family, but to deploy them for the good of others. John is basically calling people out. He's saying, don't be the kind of Christian who merely says, I love all people. 
I love everyone in general without having specific, intentional examples of where that love will be tangibly shown. Right? You, you'll, you'll not find a professing believer who will say, I don't love people. Nah, I'm not that kind of Christian. No one will say that. But can we take that a step further and ask, brother, sister, where are you right now intently and intentionally looking for those in need and seeking to address that need, to pour out love onto them? Where are you being self-sacrificial for the good of others? Not to earn your faith, but as a result of your faith. Tim Keller describes this, this form of biblical justice um, that seeks to do good for others. He, he calls it, quote, disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of others. So Grace Church, where are we disadvantaging ourselves for the advantage of others and the glory of God? I think this is one of the primary reasons why God calls us to be committed to and members of a local church. Because it covenants us together as a church body where we love and care for one another, where we have eyes on one another and others have eyes on us, where we prioritize one another and we grow together to look more like Jesus. And then we do that for one another, but then we also partner with one another to live on mission and make his name known to a world by proclaiming the gospel and then living out the implications of this gospel and pursuing biblical justice in the area and time that we live in. I think it is a flat contradiction for a Christian to say they love others while not being an active member of a local church. I think that's all words, no action. Because the church is the front lines of Christian discipleship, love, and mission. It's people we see ourselves with. And so a Christian without a church is like a fish without water. They won't last long. They won't thrive. So how do we love in action? How do we utilize what we've been given by God to deploy for the good of others? It's the topic of stewardship. And we, we won't go too deep into it now, but at Grace Church, we think of stewardship with the three T's. Ready? Time, talent, treasure. Every believer has been given time, talent, treasure, not the same as God uh, provides in his grace for others. That's going to look different for every believer. But we all have these three things to deploy for the glory of God and the good of others. And so a good question is, how are we using our time to prioritize others in the mission of the church? How are we giving our talent to build up the body of Christ with the spiritual gifts God has given us? And then how are we giving our treasure, having a posture of generosity that sows into kingdom-building work? knowing that our hearts always follow where we put God's money. This is the evidence of love. Um, and then the second part and our last point for this morning. Let's finish the passage, verses 19 to 24. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit 
whom he has given us. Lastly, we saw the evidence of love is action toward others. And now last, the second evidence of love is assurance toward self. Assurance toward self. When the Bible speaks of loving others, it does not say to love others at the expense of yourself, but to love others as yourself. You know, a a big cultural ethic in 2020, I think especially amongst younger generations, but we're kind of seeing it now go into all generations, is this big theme of you have to just love yourself. You have to put yourself first. It's the idea of self-care. It's the idea of I'm done living for others. Now I'm going to live for me. You often hear it after someone breaks up with someone else. Right? I've been doing it for them, but now I need to prioritize me. This season of life is about me. And that gets a whole bunch of likes on social media. And that'll get some follows and some retweets, and that'll get celebrated in a big way. Like, yeah, you have to worry about you. But the Bible stands in contrast to that cultural ethic. The Bible says if you're going to live as you've been designed to live by your creator, if you want to live in a way that's actually truly human, the most humanizing way of being a human, it's not self-centeredness, but self-sacrifice. To be truly human is not to be self-centered, but to live out self-sacrifice. But even there, the Bible never says don't care for your own soul. But rather, the way to best care for your own soul, the best way to love yourself is to live the self-sacrificial life. To best love yourself is to take up your cross and follow him. Because when we are restored to a relationship with him, our utmost, utmost goal in life becomes to glorify his name. And we don't glorify God by hating ourselves, but we also don't glorify God by being self-centered and only prioritizing ourselves. We glorify him by loving ourselves in him, having self-assurance in him. Be who you are and love who you are, Christian, in him. This is what John means when he says to love in truth, that that last phrase in the verse, uh, at the end of verse 18 leads him to this digression of thought in verses 19 to 24 to describe what in truth is. By this we shall know we are of the truth and we are sure our heart before him. So this is so real. Give me two minutes here, okay? This is so, I think, real for believers. And this digression of thought that John has is so vital for us. No matter how confident or mature a Christian heart is, it is so often in need of reassurance. Brothers and sisters, we are prone to discouragement. We are prone to self-condemning, to hearing the inner voice telling us we're not doing enough. You're not loving enough. You're not giving enough. You're not good enough. Anyone else? Prone to these moments where we feel like we just don't measure up. And now it might be because of our own sin where our conscience is being pricked and the Holy Spirit is uh, bearing down in our conscience because we are not living in accordance with God's word. But it also could be the enemy trying to destroy us from within in our own conscience. Right? Like Martin Luther said, Christians are simultaneously saved and sinners. We are saved from the power of sin, but the presence of sin still remains. So those waters get muddy. 
And we can get into these fits and seasons of discouragement where our own heart condemns us. So John tells us what to do in these moments. This is why this is so vital. Listen closely. He says, you don't do anything. You remember what God has already done for you. He said, God is greater than our self-condemning heart. And we are reassured not by our actions, but by his action toward us. And so a phrase that I often use in preaching, and I use even more in private counseling, is this. You need to preach to yourself, or else you'll end up listening to yourself. Let me share where I got that from. That's not from me. Nothing I ever get is from me, by the way. It's from a little book called Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones, written in 1965, who was a doctor turned into pastor. I want to read it. It'll be on the screen. He said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment, he's writing about Psalm 42, was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. When our hearts condemn us, speak to it. Tell it that God is greater than our hearts. For he has given us new hearts, and we are at rest in him. His promises are true, and our future glory is secure. Speak to yourself. Preach to yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it shows us the the truly spirit-filled life. That the spirit-filled life is not some mystical experience that we're hoping for. It's not just based on emotion, but the spirit-filled life starts every day by reminding ourselves, God loves me, God has made me his child, that we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ, and that we will choose to love others as myself this day. Father, let that be true for our hearts. We're grateful for this passage. We're grateful for the Christ-centered life and the spirit-filled life. And I pray, Lord, that you would use it in our lives to join a chorus of believers all across this globe that will worship you and you alone and that will pour ourselves out for your glory and for the good of others. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.